You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 67 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. In this episode, we have the pleasure of chatting with Kelly Brown, a graduate student at the University of South Carolina, where she is just about to graduate with a master's of library and information science. You may also know Kelly as a member of the SAA Archives Committee and the Archives Lab Manager at the Augusta Veterans Curation Program, where she not only co-manages the laboratory with Ding Dong David, but also manages his illiteracy, something (laughs) that we all struggle with here at the APN. Also, Kelly recently accepted position as the museum director of the Savannah River Site Museum. Congratulations, Kelly, on the new job. How are you doing this evening? Doing great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's weird having you. I like bring different friends on and different coworkers on that meet each other, and it's weird, but it's cool. These guys work with me every day. That's how you explain. You guys know how it goes. <laughs> uh, I do work when I do. And same thing at my other job. So, you know, we'll move, we'll move past it. Kelly, how are you today? I'm doing good. I just saw you we a already hours that. ago. So. <laughs> True. Yeah. She was trying to help me figure out how to do my taxes and we both gave up on it. Yeah. Isn't tax season very over? <laughs> yep. Okay. I also um, no, I was, why are you doing this? <laughs> I was changing my, my like claim. The IRS has entered the chat. Sometimes you just don't question David when he does stuff like that. You just let it fly. So, a lot of things come out of left field at times with David. We all understand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, Kelly, did you finish all your coursework for your graduate degree? Is that where you're at? No, I literally have one project left to do. It's due on August 2nd, and then I'm Mm -hmm. done. So, I like, I actually turned in my final portfolio stuff last semester and it's been reviewed and I passed that. And so I have to do this final summer course and then I'm done. I've graduated. So that's how close I am to being done with my master's degree. I just have to make it to August 2nd. Yay. <laughs> Congrats. That's a pretty big yeah, accomplishment. Pretty exciting. Yeah. Ready to be done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's what everybody says is the second day of graduate school. <laughs> And then every day after. So I think the audience can tell you're from New Jersey, right? Yes, I have a very <laughs> northern accent. <laughs> yeah. So where, where are you actually from? <laughs> I was born and raised in Georgia, Jackson, Georgia, Butts County, Cracker, Georgia, actually. So yeah, I was born in uh, Jackson, Georgia, and I went to school at UGA. So I didn't move very far. So I got my undergrad in uh, anthropology. After that, I did some field work up in Illinois, actually, then moved over to Augusta to do VCP, which is where I've been for the past about six years. And now I'm, I'm moving on into my job with the Savannah Riverside Museum. So that was a very confusing timeline with a lot of acronyms in it and nobody is going to understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to ask, were you always interested in, in anthropology or what What was like your nerd thing growing up, if you had anything? So, yeah, my nerd thing actually was I did a bit of 4-H stuff. So I had this one project that was 
about this the giant there's this giant land sloth actually that was found on Skidaway Island in on the coast of Georgia. And so I did this little 4-H project about the this megafauna, this giant land sloth that was excavated like in the 1800s on Skidaway Island off the coast of Georgia. And I won like first place in fourth grade for this, you know, little project I did. And that was like the beginning of my, like, I guess, journey into all things, you know, anthropology. And, stuff. and you, when you're in fourth grade, you don't know that you're like, I guess, starting to go into that pathway. But that's what my first journey into it. Actually, when I went to UGA, I didn't start out as an anthro major. I was pre-pharmacy. And so I took, you know, chemistry and biology and organic chemistry. And that just makes you want, you know, your soul is dying and it's the worst. And I was in danger of losing a lot of scholarships and stuff. And I was like, I hate this. I don't want to do this. And actually someone walked into, I was taking anthropology, just an anthropology class as an elective. And someone walked in an anthro professor and was like, who wants to do a field school and go to this Island and excavate. And I was like, I want to do that. And so like literally walked out of that class, went and changed my major that day was like applying for field school and then went into class the next day. The very next day, my professor was like, yeah, anthropology is probably the worst career you could ever go into. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? I'm going to be in so much trouble. Like <laughs> I'm going to fail in life. <laughs> like, But look, like best decision I've ever made, honestly, <laughs> like I've, loved it ever since you know I went to field school it was great I've had a wonderful journey in anthropology ever since I met great people I'm so glad that I went and changed my major honestly because pre-pharmacy was not for me (laughs) chemistry and all that stuff I think everybody kind of says like they did something else first and then they switch into anthropology because like they didn't know it was a thing or some kind of field work opportunity comes up to volunteer. I think only sociopaths start off in anthropology. Everyone else kind of switches over because they have a good head on their shoulders. Listen up, Caleb. <laughs> wow, way to alienate like, at least a quarter of our audience and call them sociopaths. They're probably the same people that dip their finger into Jif peanut butter and then put it back in after they lick it off. So oh, I'm, so I'm fine. I think we're done disparaging our, our listeners. You're not sociopaths or <laughs> finger... <laughs> people who finger uh peanut butter jars how did i got i <laughs> i got to ask how did how did your megafauna sloth presentation go over with cuz i assume like the the rest of the presentations were like about like cows horses and other other things like that well like no so actually the way they do it in 4H if i'm, I'm remembering all these years ago is they like divide you up into like based on whatever your topic is so it was like, if you did something on, you know, poultry or dairy or whatever, you were like put in a group with other people, other kids that did their projects on that. And so my friend did some on entomology. So she was off doing that. And it was like me and one other kid that did a project on like arrowheads or, you know, and so it was me and this one other person. And like, we were the only two kids in there. It was just, so I could have gotten first or second place. I got first place. Because I'm a winner, but <laughs> well, good. There weren't a lot of us in there because it was just, I guess, I don't know. Those weren't topics that kids were new about, or were, I guess, being taught by adults who knew to to teach kids about and research. You know, 
I don't know. And I don't even know how I honestly now thinking about how I knew to think about a mega, like a giant sloth. I don't know where I even got onto that. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I think we usually ask people like, were you a, like a dinosaur kid or a space kid or a cowboy kid? And I don't think we've had a sloth kid. So <laughs> great. Welcome to that club. I didn't make it fun sloth. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you went to undergrad and then in undergrad you were like, well, you did your field school first, right? And then you worked in the Zoar lab. Do you want to talk about that? Field school was my very first anthropology class. Like literally, well, I had my elective. And then field school was my first introduction to archaeology. Like before I even took archaeology 101, like I did field school. But then I, I got into, you know, all my other classes in Zoar was just like my jam. And I got offered a place to work in the lab. And I was able to work on a project from a site called Irene. And it was a site that was excavated back during the 30s and 40s and 50s. But it was a really cool site that has, I think a lot of these sites on the southeastern side, back in the days when they were being excavated, were one, people were handpicking a lot of bones out of these sites. And so especially on the coast, there weren't a lot of, you wouldn't see things like tiny fish bones and stuff that were kind of slipping through the record. But I did, I think one of the coolest parts of working in the Zark lab was having to sort of see small fish bones and things because on the coast that you would see a lot of that kind of stuff. But I guess one of the coolest things about Zark is, you know, having to learn all the different types of animal bones and things. There's a lot of memorization with it. And there's something about it that my brain just really latches onto and loves. I don't know. David works with me in the lab and anytime a tech opens a box and there's like a lot of animal bones, I kind of like creep over and I'm like, just, let me see what you have there. Yeah. It's honestly the most exciting thing that happens in the lab half the time. When a bone comes out, we're always like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and then we debate for 45 minutes as to if it's bear, human or turtle or whatever and you're usually correct and then yeah it's pretty it's usually how it goes and then chris puts his input in and it's not correct and yeah <laughs> god, bless, god bless his beautiful soul and i bet he giggles the entire time <laughs> oh chris he's a good guy yeah. he, was, he was funny today <laughs> at the end of the day he's like i'm gonna skedaddle <laughs> He was skedaddling about five minutes before he finally walked out of the door. I was like, all right, Chris. He's Jerry Gergich from Parks and Rec, and I, I love every second of it. He has a little blue lunchbox that, like, oh, yeah. he'll grab it and leave, and he's like, all right, folks, That's it have a good today. one. <laughs> you, guys um, you guys haven't started calling him something different, like, um, oh, I can't even think of other, like, other C word names, not Chris, but like Christoph or something like different variations of it. Nope. Okay. <laughs> <On to that. laughs> I don't know. So, uh, at, at the VCP, you work with archives. So there's, there's a couple places in museums where people work, you work with artifacts, you work with collections and things like that. So could you explain to us, uh, what the day to day looks like? for you and what you're preserving? 
Yeah, so at my job, we get artifact collections, and then along with the collections, we get all the documentation that goes with it. And I know that a lot of people are, like, really excited about the artifacts, and the artifacts are so important, and it's really great that we have those to help us kind of piece together the past. But my job is to organize all the documentation that goes along with it, because without the documents, those artifacts are almost useless. Um, So, but also along with that, it's really important to recognize that those documents are can also be just as useless if they aren't well maintained and well organized and preserved. So my job is to make sure that these documents are in some kind of logical order and are accessible to people that need them. And so I really want to be able to sort of create, you know, a a system for not only like future researchers, but just, you know, people I want, I wish, I just really wish to create sort of an awareness for even just archaeologists today to sort of, you know, be aware of how you are taking notes in the field and doing your record keeping today for people of the future. Because I don't know, if you're not being aware of how you're taking stuff down and storing your stuff today and putting them into boxes and stuff, then the people coming after you cannot, like me, who's trying to decipher what you did, it's just impossible to, you know, use those for, to match them up to your artifacts. So beyond just organizing the, you know, past archaeological researches and notes and documents and things, my job is sort of to teach people of, you know, today to make sure you're being aware of what you're doing with your archives and your, your notes right now. So that's kind of what I do. I I organize and document and create systems for archives of the past and sort of teach and train people today to be careful of what they're doing for future researchers. Yeah. The, the thing they miss in like archaeology movies is like the amount of paperwork that you fundamentally have to do. It's, you know, there's always some, some paperwork to be done. It's not all digging and, and, and sexy like that. You need like fundamentally to do the actual work and record everything and things like that otherwise you're you're chasing like a you're on a wild goose chase later on later on and kelly's not happy with you <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's like I'm sight forms and, angry. Uh, <laughs> i know you're good you're good um and I, I for people listening like we're talking like like test unit forms survey forms maps and then like uh, what I learned at this job from Kelly is like there's correspondence. So you have to like actually, you know, document like letters people wrote to each other about monetary stuff because that usually comes up later. And um, yeah, all stuff like that you don't think about. And like, I guess two quick anecdotes before we end the session. One, uh, after I left Wyoming, I texted some people that I worked with in the Guernsey lab and I was like, how's that stuff, lab work coming? And they're like, most of the time we try to decipher what you wrote. <laughs> it's not great. Uh, try to figure out what you meant by this and the numbers are all wrong. And then Carlton, you're currently working like with the end product of this right now, right? With what you're going through. Uh, yes, I'm actually working in collections and archives related to the Jones Miller site and it is boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of field notes from the 70s 80s and when they dabbled in again in the 2000s and it is a it's a living hell 
Yeah. I hate every moment of it. <laughs> Isn't that fun? It's yeah. really encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. On, on that note, we were going to end this first segment. Here it comes. I don't have anything funny to say. So this is just episode 67, segment one. We're going to go into segment wow. two with Kelly Brown. We're going to so close the blamed. box on this one. And welcome back to episode 67. We are here with Kelly Brown. Kelly, what's it like working with David nine to five, Monday through Friday? Because me and Connor, you know, we only really interact with him in a virtual space primarily. So we can ignore yeah, him. Thank God. As he can ignore us as needed. <laughs> but like you, you have to be there. So how, what's the experience like working with David? Truly it is like a second job. Uh, <laughs> I have a second planner for David that I keep on my desk and I pencil in. Do you actually? No, I don't, David. Oh, I was like, I wouldn't put it past you. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I do get little reminders for you sometimes that I'm like, better go tell him because I know he'll oh. forget. <laughs> Yeah, I do too. I have a whole section in my notes app that says remind David of this. And it's just a list that goes back like a year and a half now of just a list of just random stuff. Mid mid paragraph. We're talking to me about life problems yesterday. Kelly goes, wait. Do you have therapy today or do you not? And I was like, I don't know. And it like came up onto her phone, not mine somehow. And she was like, make sure you go to the doctor. Well, and it's spelled. Or, hey, drink water it's spelled today. Threppy. T-H-R-E-P-P-Y. And I was like, you have your Threppy today? <laughs> yeah. It's fun. It's a beautiful combination of your mental health and your illiteracy. <laughs> Uh, quarantine was really hard because they had to like watch me on Google Docs try to just do the regular part of my job and then they would just do it for me because like, I can't take this. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. 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 Um, so I didn't know this till I worked with you. Were you in school when we, I first started working there or did you start later? I think I, when did you start at the VC? When did you start? <laughs> 20, Too long ago? Uh, uh, I don't know. 2018. I think I might have just started. Yeah, March 20th. I think I started okay. like January 20th, Well, whatever. It's been two and a half years. Okay. That, that checks out. So I didn't know what MLIS was, and you were like all about it, and I was like, good for you. And I, I had no idea. Uh, can you explain to the audience who also has no idea what that is? Yeah, so a master's in library and information science uh, is what MLIS stands for. So it basically is uh, can prepare anyone for, you know, a job in a library, if that's what you want to go into. You can do a kind of a traditional librarian approach where you work in like a public library. You can go into working in like an academic library in a college, um, or you can go into like uh, working in a library and a school, or a lot of li- uh, MLIS programs offer sort of a more non-traditional uh, pathway. So it's more focused on information science. That's kind of the approach that I took because I wanted to focus more on archives. That can kind of prepare anyone for working more in, um, you know, an archival institution or 
maybe uh, an information science focus could be more fitting for a business or a different kind of corporate industry. But it's really a degree that's kind of, it's pretty flexible. I've seen lots of different job postings that have uh, requirements for MLIS. So, and I think it pairs really well with the degrees in anthropology or even archaeology. I've seen, I was really surprised when I got into the program, how many other students were, had degrees in anthropology. I went into my like orientation and sat down and I was, and we were doing, you know, like the intros, like meet your like little cohort or whatever. And I looked over at the person next to me and was like, I have a bachelor's in anthropology. And she was like, oh, I have a PhD in anthropology. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> like Oof. we have a lot in common, I guess. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, it's, you're, you'll meet a lot. There's a lot of people who have that kind of background going into library science. So, um, yeah, that's kind of. But that's you can see the PTSD kind of in Carlton's eyes right now. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I've been contemplating getting a, a master's in Indian law to supplement my career possibilities. But God, uh, with MILS, does that involve any sort of like database management as well when it comes to these information systems, or is it strictly like cataloging and archiving? and the Dewey Decimal System? No, there's a lot of database. Man- Actually, I just I took a whole course on, on database management, and we worked with um, Access, which is the database. But I think, Gosh. yeah, there's information science is a pretty big, like, field, but it, database management is, you know, it's a pretty big part of information science, and there's some pretty big... You guys don't use Access for your job, right? Oh, Yeah. That's I've worked um, with Access all six years. So I've been there. Let me tell you, we worked with Access 2010 until this year. Oh God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. Like I thought Emu was frustrating, but I couldn't imagine doing like old it's school only, Access. It's only if you're Australian that Emus are frustrating. <laughs> but it is like at its core, Access is like the more accessible platform. I guess we could argue. Um, well. And like, Wait, I missed a joke there. <laughs> Shut up, <dude. laughs> No, I think they made a pun about emus, and I, I just went over my head. I, uh, I said they're uh, emus only frustrating if you're Australian. <laughs> oh, that was a callback to the great emu <laughs> war that we had to explain to an Australian what that was about, part of their own history. Oh, right. Um, yeah. Oh, that was a ostrich. It's an emu. Sorry. All right. (laughs) Maddie's episode. Okay. Yeah. So you were in the class about, uh, you were using access there and we use access at work. I think this is probably all we can really say on that, but. But yeah, the database management is a huge part of information science because there's a whole section of preservation that's like turning digital. And so Building, uh, building different types of databases that can handle all this digital preservation has become a, a huge challenge in the field. And so finding a way to code these things and support, I think, these, these preservation challenges is going to become, you know, we're going to need people who can do that. So, Absolutely. I, I think you would be great at the the shippo for Oklahoma that doesn't have any sort of digital records for any of their file search, mm. any sort of stuff. So they have nothing. They don't even have digital copies of their uh, site forms or any of their site data. 
So it's, yeah, it's it's a backwards place. It's an awful place. Oklahoma's an awful place. It's the official yes. stance of a life and ruin podcast. Um, but it's, it's super important because it's like you're saying, these systems are um, being created and used in in shippos and at least in like Wyoming, they have the shippos connected to the curation and everything like that. It's all kind of intertwined. And it takes it takes people who know about those systems to manage them like you and other people who are getting these degrees. And it's super important and it makes our lives as like contractors super easy if those things are all intertwined and easy to access and things like that. I've also thought in terms of, and I, I kind of want your thoughts on this, Kelly, because with the amount of digital space that is now required to perform archives management, collections management, even archaeology, is there kind of a worry that there's going to be a, a huge issue? Because a lot of digital products today have planned obsolescence involved just in terms of their production. So is there going to be like a point in, in your professional opinion where it's going to be a it's highly problematic to continue to store all this information in a digital space? Well, I don't think so. I think that digital space, there's going to be more digital space. I do think the issue is going to be that we're creating so many different types types of digital data that it's going to be hard to figure out how to keep updating them to keep them like relevant like keep them from becoming obsolete and keep them you know up to date and working and accessible it's not going to be the space that's the issue it's going to be keeping all that data usable like who's going to cuz what this is what happened is like when you create when you have like a physical piece of that piece like a document and then you digitize it now you've created another digital thing that has to be preserved and you have to have someone who knows how to like keep updating that and as like you know technology keeps evolving and updating blah 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 and so like that's what's going to become the issue i think not like that we're running out of space like in the cloud or whatever i think space is going to keep becoming available it's just going to be everyone's creating different types of data and stuff that's you know unique and weird and different and then figuring out how to create a standardized like type of data that can easily be transferred over the years as technology evolves is that, does that make sense or like a, i don't know about yeah, like a format. yeah so like so like a like a pdf might become obsolete at some point and then you have to update that to the newest form of technology which yeah. is a huge undertaking oh yeah to kind of keep point. up with that because like what is it like a some sort of uh flash player just died adobe flash yeah exactly player. adobe was like we're not you can't use this anymore because we're like not existing uninstall us on your computer did everyone did everyone get that message on their computer because i got that message yeah, yeah technology is just yeah. like dying in some places and like being created in other places and so like yeah stuff and that's why like so that's why we use access at our lab because it's it's a Microsoft product that's been, I think Microsoft has been a pretty stable thing that it keeps working for a lot of years and you, like know, you, you can upgrade. Like if you could bet on something like Microsoft will probably be around, you know, exactly. that's a fair yeah. bet to say. Like, So you guys were saying before, like, I guess Carlton was saying planned obsolescence, but like, 
it just dawned on me when you guys are talking. So in the sense that like you and I look at old, like, you know, yellow paper site reports or like stuck notes that are written down and we have to scan those in and turn them into PDFs in like 50 years, people doing our job are going to have to look at PDFs and be like, Oh God, I got to like deal with this thing. And I didn't think about that until right now. Yeah. Well, not to mention like dad, like these files degrade over time. Like I know there was a big, I was talking to a colleague who works in archives in the Southwest and they ran into a huge issue where the government was like, all right, once you turn everything digitally, get rid of the original copies. And they're like, we have these 18th and 19th century maps and other like historic documents. Do you really want us to just burn these? And the government just kind of looked at them and just like, Man. And it's caught, and it's been like a six month process of trying to not destroy some of those those products. But at the same time, it's like, okay, if we digitize everything, you know, if that file degrades, you lose that forever. Well, and so that's been the like that's everyone's like, well, just digitize everything and you can get rid of a lot of the physical stuff. But then there's like also the risk of one, yeah, the digital files could degrade and then you you lose your digital file and then, Oh no, you've gotten rid of your physical file. And then there's also like the weird, like chance of like, if like a, a virus or something just got in and completely destroyed a whole database where you've stored all these things, then you're like, and you've gotten rid of all your, all your physical files and you're just, what do you do? You, and you know, and these are like the new, the new kind of challenges yeah. that we're facing in the digital age. Curious to think that someone can hit like delete on one folder and then, you know, possibly ruin like a lot of history and all that stuff be permanently gone because we've gotten rid of the physical copies or, you know, someone just got a wild hair. It's like, mm, I'm going to delete this whole database and everything will be fine. Yeah, it's 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 like frightening to think about. Hashtag remember the Library of Alexandria. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so there's like I did a project in graduate school on this thing called there are things called like dark archives. And they're. But like the dark web? <laughs> well, not quite. But it is like it's sort it's so it's like a dark archive is like it's basically an archive that I just picture an anonymous is like, hey guys, uh just hang on, takes the mask off and you're like, We actually need an archivist. Is anyone you know <laughs> we gotta hold these files? Alright, anyway. Well it, but so this dark archive is like it's like an archive that's inaccessible to the public that's like like super secure and like you know hidden away and it's like where all these it's like it's and it, there's like several pieces of the like dark archives around like secure places in different like parts of the world where you can like store very important things and that way if something does happen to like one piece of the dark archive it's been backed up at the other archive and like that way it like is super secure and like the public cannot access it no one can access it and it keeps everything like super backed up and so that's it's like a super secure who's in charge of this dark archive of this this goes in different continents there's these (laughs) black so there's these black sites of of data repositories that are off the books that just have all this. What information's on there? Like, I don't what are they hiding? The, I don't think it's the dark archive. I think there are such things as, <laughs> as dark archives that like function like that. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> the dark archive. Like, 
just uh, uh, name like Pizzagate and like just other crazy, <laughs> crazy files. Segwaying from like, did you one? I was going to ask you what made you want to take MLIS, and in your graduate program, did you take Defense Against the Dark Archives? <laughs> Oh, 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 oh. Well, I, like I had that one brewing. I am so a Slytherin, so. Um. I, I, <laughs> Wait, did you just say you're a Slytherin? So this interview is over. Ravenclaw for life. Just dead silence. <laughs> Ravenclaw. I'm a Ravenclaw. I'm a Ravenclaw. Are y'all all three Ravenclaws? Yeah, it's because no. of the ginger beard. Gryffindor, get the get out of here! Come I'm on, Gryffindor. Look at the beard. Of course, he's a Gryffindor. He's a freaking Weasley. This is an unbalanced podcast. And on that note, we're gonna slither on out of this segment, and we'll be right back with episode uh, sixty-seven with Kelly Brown. We are back with. Uh, I forgot already. Uh, we're back with the episode that is currently playing on your iPod. It's so. IPhone 67. Thank you. You don't even do this podcast. Uh, uh, so that you, David. is a thing that I said. I forgot where I was at already. <laughs> right. We're talking about MLIS. What got you? <laughs> this is every day. Hang on. Let me compose myself. Chris, you don't even have to cut this out. The audience <laughs> needs to know this is the real me. Hang on. Okay. So 67. We're, welcome back to episode 67 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We're here with Kelly Brown M.A. as of next week. No. M.S. M.L.I.S. Oh, all right. You know what? Connor, would you like to start and keep all that, Chris, because they need to know. (laughs) God. Hi, my name is Kelly Brown, and I'm back on the Life and Ruins podcast, episode 67. Okay. Hi, Kelly. I think last segment we ended with like, what got you into that degree? Or I wanted to ask that question. So like, could you tell us what got you into that? I'm assuming it's our job. Yeah, you're right. So working with archaeological archives every day. This has probably been the worst intro to a segment we've ever had. And this is not Kelly's fault. This is a train wreck. I took Kelly introduced herself in her Kelly own introduced episode. herself to her own episode. Uh, th- they need to know though that this is this is what happens. So uh, continue introducing yourself and go from there. Okay. okay. Yeah, so I'm gonna get my MLIS in a couple of weeks. And I got interested in this job because, yeah, working with uh, archaeological archives every day. I didn't even know that uh, really those were very important, honestly, until I started working with them. I, I didn't know an MLIS was a thing either until I, you know, started looking into, you know, how could, what other, how could you work with archives and what sort of education options were there for that kind of thing? And then that's how I honestly discovered the the master's in library and information science. When I started looking into programs, I found most of them were actually offered online. I chose to go to the University of South Carolina because it is kind of, it's close to Augusta, which is where I am living now. Most of the library and information science programs are Traditionally, I think offered online anyway, which I know most programs with the pandemic going on are kind of offered remotely now. 
So the pandemic actually didn't really affect me that much because my program was mostly online anyway. But I worked full time, got my master's degree and had to figure out how to balance that all at the same time. And it's doable. It's it's not fun, but it's doable. And, you know, I dealt with David the whole time, too, and still have managed to do this. So if I can do it, anyone out there can do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like that's a, that's a third job. You know, it's a certificate. A, it's yeah. a certificate in David's studies. Um, <laughs> uh, I was about to ask, like, is that is that difficult? Not me, like the managing me, but is it difficult to do... I guess you answered it like it, to do school online and work full time. But like, is it different because it's online? Like if you had gone into like a physical school, would you find that harder or easier? Honestly, I wish I had been able to go to class. I, mean, I don't think that I mean, I think going to there's it's hard to replace that in person class kind of, you know, yeah. connection with your peers and your your professors and stuff. But honestly, I think that there is a way to force those connections online. There's the professors have gotten very creative with how they do classwork and teamwork. Now I had a lot, a lot of, you know, group projects, which I was really surprised about in all of my classes. I also had to do a lot of interviews with like professionals and stuff for a lot of my classes where I I had to like zoom or call or, meet with other professionals out in the field and interview them about um, certain aspects of their job. For one class, I had to go and, you know, tour an archive and I was able to actually schedule a tour with the Coca-Cola archives because they're based in Atlanta, Georgia. So that was really cool. It was, you know, it's not open to the public. So I got to do sort of a behind the scenes tour of what they have in their archives. But yeah, I really wish I'd been able to do an in-person master's, but you know, when you're working and you don't have that option, it's, you do what you have to do. And I think there's always been sort of a stigma behind getting a degree, a master's degree online, but they're just as good. And they're, it's just as difficult and you get just as good of an education, I believe doing online master's degrees. So that's my two cents. (laughs) Yeah. Were other students working with, or at least interested in physical archives, or is it mostly folks who are interested in already digital, digital sort of data? Or were you kind of the one that's like, I like, I like old show notes, or I like, I like, I like old like archaeology <laughs> notes, you know? That I, yeah. Was it I was mean, it was it a variety? Yeah, you get a variety because, and a lot of the classes are tailored towards like libraries and stuff. So you get a lot of students who are definitely like, I'm going to be a school librarian. And you're like, cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I mean, that's cool. But sometimes you're like, that's not what I'm interested in, but good for you. And I mean, and definitely in some of the courses, I definitely had to twist, like tailor the assignments towards what I was interested in and like, you know, be like, I'm going to make this so that it's more archival versus like library, but I, you could do it. And the professors always were very willing to like work with you and make it so that it was, you know, going to be more relevant towards your professional, you know, interest. 
But the courses definitely were, you know, you could choose if you wanted to do more archival courses or if you wanted to do more like librarian courses. And yeah, there are definitely students who are way more interested in like the data oriented stuff. And then some who are way more interested in like preservation and, you know, like me, like archaeological and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. I would say I did not go to, I did not get my master's with the intention of being an archaeological archivist. I definitely want to expand my my field my field of interest. I think I've got I've kind of specialized until now in archaeological archives, but I would like to take that base and sort of expand it out into different areas of the field of archives. You know, there's all sorts of things you can do. You can work in museum fields. You started working for the like SAA archives committee, right? Yeah. So like you're doing something that's not, yeah. So I'm a volunteer for the SAA our newly formed archives committee. So it's never existed before, but we're trying to create some sort of standardized collection policy for like the organization itself in the manner of just like documenting the way the society for American archeology span like functions. So like for years we've been like just sort of sending stuff over to the national, uh, the NAA, the National Anthropological Archives. For years, the SAA has just been sending stuff over there, and it's just a ton of, like, just random, like, stuff that people have been like, this might be useful in, to the history of the organization and how it was formed. And so until now, it's just been boxes sitting over there, and it's just not been, like, organized or processed, and it's just been sent randomly at random times. And so someone was like, maybe we should form an archives committee and like try to standardize exactly what we're sending over there and ha- organize it in some kind of fashion because we're paying for the space over there and it's just, it's like just building up. So we're trying to or like create some kind of standardized way to just, you know, save that stuff and organize it. But we just started. It's a big, it's kind of a big undertaking because a lot of random stuff. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. This is like a backlog of things, too. Yeah. <laughs> if audience members listening right now are like, do I want my PhD? Do I want to go into CRM? Do I want to, you know, go into finance or <laughs> back to pharmacy? Like, what would you say to them about, like, archives? Like, where could they get into that? And, like, I guess, like, can you do that at CRM firms? Is that, like... Would you just have to go to school or like, do you see what I'm asking? Cause I don't, <laughs> <laughs> um, let me phrase this correctly. Like where, what are some like lot, uh, not, what's not logical, but like real world applications of, you know, going into this field right now with like the, the knowledge they have right archeologically. So archeologically, like if they have some archeological like education already. So, so could you give us your pitch, your elevator pitch of why you should become an archivist? <laughs> That's it. Where you can, where you can apply that. Yeah. So, um, I think, you know, the field of archives is definitely one that's, we need people who 
you know, are it's a field that's not going to go away. We have a lot of history and things that are already on the shelves that could be brought into light. And especially now we have all these really cool social media avenues. And I think that it'd be cool to create, you know, different ways to bring a lot of things are sort of in a backlog now at a lot of different institutions, like even just corporate archives or different small local archives or maybe a public library or just a local university someone who is just interested in looking at these archives and helping these these things on the shelves come into light and reach the public i think someone who has the creative vision to sort of organize and bring them back to focus you know so just money is hard to get to storage is hard we need to make the public and stakeholders care about these collections again. So I think that's kind of like what an archivist does these days. And, you know, if you're interested in organizing and that's your jam, then maybe an MLS would be what you should, should look into. So. I've never heard of that, of that degree. And as you were kind of talking, like for a lot of indigenous communities that work in like small tribal museums or cultural centers, like archivists are extraordinarily important because there are so many things from like the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries that were by early anthropologists that went out and collected because they thought, you know, Indians were going to die out Mm -hmm. that are now just sitting in like Smithsonian storage. So like old photographs, there's like wax seal cylinder recordings mm-hmm. which i think are dope and so i have like a huge respect for archivists especially now at dmns like working with our archives manager and how important that is not only to you know preserving data but it's part of that whole process of archaeology that i don't think many archaeologists think about like post artifact like cataloging cleaning them that it's just part of this world that many archaeologists just don't think about anymore because yeah. once they're out of the ground the archaeologists are like all right this is it but there's that whole other you know in perpetuity aspect that um archivists are completely complicit in and maintaining all this data that a lot of people went out and just collected out of the ground mm-hmm. oh gosh and, don't get me started on the curation crisis that whole like okay i was just about <laughs> to say that it like falls into that same category yeah. And like, I, I guess from my experience working at sites, like multiple different sites with multiple different universities and then like different companies, even like, so it just, it's a given that the, you know, file system for those are always going to be different between the different institutions um, and how they record data. But like, even among the people on the crew filling out the sheets, it's like a very different style of filling out the notes. So then like, at our job, Kelly, like when we're looking through it, it's like, all right, this is not the same format as that. And like, what does that mean? You know, it's just, there's a lot of stuff that like, if you collected artifacts the like same way ubiquitously, it'd be great. But like, then also there's so much variation in the, the document side of it that it's just a mess and someone's got to deal with that. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess I didn't really have a question with that. I was just making an angry statement. So. <laughs> So uh, as a, as a, as a final question, where ideally, where would you want to like, what records do you want to work with? What records do I want to work with? Yeah. Like what kind of archives 
do you want to work with? If you had like your druthers, like you could choose anywhere. Oh gosh. I don't know. I've never thought about it. I just. Hogwarts. <laughs> no, I don't think Hogwarts. No, she's a Slytherin. She doesn't, she doesn't care for data or. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think, I, I think I just am interested in all sorts of different. I don't think there's a particular collection I want to work with or type of record or anything. I just am so interested in learning about all sorts of different types. I just want to keep learning more and more and more. And like, just, I I think even just the field of archives is evolving so much right now, especially because everything digital is becoming such a big, a big thing too, that it's just going to be, it's just a new frontier with that also. So I'm just really excited to keep, learning as much as I can and, and sort of interacting with as many collections as I can and being as creative as I can to just get other people, you know, excited about it and to engage with them and, and, you know, just make other people aware and hope that people can be in, you know, interested. <laughs> Cause I, I get excited about yeah. it, but I can see the light die in other people's eyes when I talk about it. <laughs> it's just, like oh no <laughs> no <laughs> so i don't know i just want to come up with yeah. other ways to like <laughs> transfer my excitement to other people <laughs> i'm trying um, absolutely that's the challenge <laughs> you know and then you, <laughs> maybe would would you start as a your directorship we can get you back on and and we can uh you know provide a medium to to, to get people excited about this. But in the meantime, Kelly, what are a couple of sources that you'd recommend for anyone interested? M-I-L-S. M-L-I-S. M-L-I-S, yeah. <laughs> just for, I think, M-L-I-S, honestly, just doing, I don't have any particular sources, but I will give some advice for just, I think, you know, doing a good Google search for MLIS degrees and will pull up lots of good programs. It, you know, they want you to find them. So it will pop up with lots of information. That's how I, I got started with that, that kind of search. As far as just lots of sources for different types of archives and archaeology, uh, I did want to mention TDAR, which we didn't really touch on, but the digital archaeological okay. record. That <laughs> has been sort of a project that I think is very interesting. It's sort of a digital repository for digital records of, you know, archaeological investigations. And it's, you know, dedicated to sort of ensuring long-term preservation of, of archaeological data. But it, I feel like, you know, it's a good project, but it's it's, it's a little frustrating because it feels a little incomplete. There's not a lot of, you'll click on something and it'll be like, this report has been cited. And there's not an actual like report there for you to look at, <laughs> which is, you know. But I think if you're interested in, in in digital, you know, archiving or and archaeology, it's a cool site to look at and to, you know, read the history on. So I would recommend you know, that as a source to sort of look at. Yeah. I'd also say just you know, the Society of American Archivists is a great site to, and also just, you know, organization to look at if you're interested in archiving at all. They have lots and lots of great sources for archives. I go there all the time for information. 
also the Northeast Document Conservation Center. I use that a lot for when I'm working with different documents that need to be have they have conservation issues. So if they're ripped or torn or dirty, which I sometimes have to deal with when I have dirty documents in the lab, I go to that website. Uh, they have lots of great guides for cleaning and mending. Those are my fun ones. Those are my the ones I use the most. Okay. Well, I didn't forget it this time. Excellent. And where can our listeners find your work on social media or your job on social media? I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> this is Kelly That's Brown. a first. You're the first first you're like, my LinkedIn is Kelly. Okay, well, well that's all right. LinkedIn. Kelly Brown. Sounds good. You can find that description. What about social media? Are you on social media? Yes. That you want people to find? Find me. <laughs> I'm I'm Fair enough. not public on there. <laughs> Sounds good. We totally awesome. understand that. I'm a slip. Yeah, um, I would say at Veterans Curation Program on Facebook and uh, Instagram. Oh, are we promoting that? Is that okay? I guess. Uh, I, th- I think so. I mean, that's on my resume. Sorry. So I guess our resumes. Cool. Veterans Curation Program. Is our resume like public on here? It's on your LinkedIn. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, I've I guess d- it kind of is. <laughs> does it say where you were? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess it does say um, veterans. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get canceled or we don't get canceled. It's Schrodinger's cancel. <laughs> so Schrodinger's cancel. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Carlton or Connor, you're on deck. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Thank you so much, Kelly, for joining us today. So we always ask because our show is called Life and Ruins. We always ask this question. So if you had the chance. Would you still choose to live in life in ruins, but it would have to be properly documented and in at, on acid-free paper? Yes, I would. I suppose. I'm just kidding. Yes, I would. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, we just interviewed Kelly Brown. You can find her on LinkedIn. Uh, just Kelly Brown. Uh, Yay! And you can find VCP on Facebook and Instagram. That All that stuff is in the links below. And if you guys could please be sure to rate and review the podcast to provide us with feedback on whichever podcasting platform you're used to listening to on our show. That was not right. Where you listen to our show. Just review the podcast. Guys, every week. Say this every week. Review the, review the damn podcast. Just give just one star. Just say, David needs to leave. Carlton needs to cut his hair. Connor needs to be happier. Just, you know, give us something. Thank you. And the hair's getting long. It's almost as long as long. <laughs> and as you can't point. you you can't review us on Spotify or rate us on Spotify. Just on iTunes. So please do that. Oh really? Okay. Awesome. Yeah, we well. All right, everyone. Well, this has been episode six, seven, Life Roots podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Ladies and gents, I've compiled my dad joke insults and archived them. I call it the dad abase.
Jesus Christ. That's really good. I'm really impressed. I like you know, that, Connor. It's like, it's when they're good, it's like the, I have to shrug the most because it's I fell for it. Oh, that was good. The database. I love that. Yeah. It's so relevant. Like, oh, dude, props to you, Connor. Props Did you make to it you, up? man. No, that's Google. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And we are um, out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.